Welcome to Radio Survivor. This is the Sound of Strong Communities. I'm Paul Reismanel, and I'm, I'm one of your hosts. My name is Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. And we're happy to have with us here Petri Dish, who how, how would I mean you are a uh, you're a station builder. How do you how do you call yourself these days? Uh, these days, I'm I'm working as a radio engineer, uh, building building low power radio stations, building full power stations, doing a little bit of training, this and that. And you particularly focus on community radio stations. I do. I uh, I only work on nonprofit stations uh, and uh, non-commercial stations. Uh, I mostly focus on a lot of farm worker stations. Uh, farm worker stations. Yeah, farm work for for farm workers unions, for schools, environmental groups, uh, that sort of thing. And I've been doing it well for the first bunch of years with. Prometheus Radio Project, and now with a new organization called International Media Action. And I do uh, most of my work in the United States, but more and more I, I try to work outside. So I think I'm up to about 40 states and about 19 countries uh, of doing like some form of, you know, work with or workshops and community radio. Well, it's a good thing we have like six or seven hours to uh, really <laughs> dig in. <laughs> it is a podcast. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, what, what brings you here to uh, beautiful uh, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest because uh, it was a, a momentous occasion that, 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 is, that just happened. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally fantastic. Back when I was working with the Prometheus Radio Project, which is a group that uh, worked to expand the low-power radio service and and create opportunities for small civil society organizations to have their own radio stations, uh, one of our, our best partnerships was with a group called PECUN, Pinheros y Campesinos Unidos del Nuestre. And they are local to here. They are a farm workers' union. Uh, but they're more than a farm workers union. They have nine associated nonprofits, you know, one that works on immigrants' rights, one that works on uh, youth development, uh, leadership development. Uh, they have a housing uh, community development corporation. And uh, they had wanted to build a radio station for a very long time. They actually bought time on a station called KWBY, Cowboy, uh, in order to reach their constituents of, of, of farm, farm laborers. <laughs> and they paid $300 an hour wow. uh, in order to have that time and reach out to everyone. In, in what region of Oregon? In Woodburn. In Woodburn, Oregon. What can you tell us about the geography of Woodburn? I think it's about, it's about an hour south of Portland. And, and, and agricultural. agricultural community. Yeah. It's also sort of near Salem, the, uh, the state capital of, of Oregon. That's pricey. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this was 15 years ago. Uh, so uh, it was quite a bit of money. And But the owner of the station was a friend of the owner of the strawberry fields that they wor- that their constituents worked in. And after a couple months... Like a he Steinbeck ju- novel. Yeah, he, it, just like it. He just said, you know, I don't want your money. You can't have a show on my station anymore. And so when the Low Power FM opportunity came up, uh, a wonderful woman who's local to here, uh, Andrea Cano, who was working on uh, a group called Micro, Micro Radio Implementation Project, uh, reached out to them, and uh, they were like, "Of course, we want a radio station, you know." And and this is a group that really knows the difference between being a renter and an owner mm-hmm. of, of 
of, of something like this. And they are very, very deliberate in their plans to, you know, to, to work and, and build power for their community. So um, the radio station was like a very, uh, you know, a very big deal for them. And uh, so Prometheus, what we did was we had these events that we called radio barn raisings, where we would bring a whole bunch of volunteers and build a radio station over the course of a weekend. And so uh, I think it was our 10th radio barn raising that we did in Woodburn. And uh, we brought about three or 400 people for two or three days. This would be how many years ago? 10 years ago. Okay. And we basically had about 40 or 50 workshops and like how to run a radio station, how to wire up the mixing board, how to, you know, make a studio transmitter link. And over the weekend, we, you know, put the antenna up on the tower and built out studio. There was a lot of support from local labor. I remember SEIU came out uh, with a bunch of volunteers to help out. And, uh, you know, on the whole idea is that, you know, one thing that leftists have a lot of problems with is we were always in the circular firing squad. And so <laughs> one of the, the things that we really shot for in these barn racings was to make a deadline and a time pressure. Like, do you want the farm workers to have a radio station on Sunday night or do you not? Mm -hmm. And so like the pressure <laughs> of like of a real, of actual goal-oriented behavior made uh, made our events like just kind of magical in a, in a way, just like to be able to like really force us all to focus on, on, on what was important and sort of build between the communities. Um, and, uh, so we, you know, so, so that happened about 10 years ago and, uh, and they just had their 10th anniversary with, uh, uh, the head of the United Farm Workers Union here, the head of Radio Bilingue and, um, and, uh, the new, uh, state Senator, uh, what was her name again? Her name is Teresa Alonso Leon. Right. Right, and she was she just was elected to state representative in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. for the Woodburn area, but but ah, her election is is monumental for for uh, for one big reason. Rural She's, Oregon doesn't elect Democrats usually. I'm going to guess. <laughs> I'm just going to guess. Well, and it also has not before her district has not yet uh, elected uh, a Latina or uh, an indigenous woman. She's uh, a oh, Pecha. Wow. so she's the she's the first. And uh, they had a, a, a beautiful crew of 20 uh, teenagers that went around and do knocked on 35,000 doors for her, for her election. So, uh, And was this, was this organizing effort related to the radio station? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like they're all in Pacoon's network of, you know, of people that, that, that they've worked with, uh, you know. So, so... Anyway, just a fantastic event, and you know, especially uh, after the election, uh, to see uh, the difference between you know what kind of happens with neoliberal corporate Democrats, uh, and you know that that think that they can just you know they're like owed the office, uh, and real grassroots organizing, you know, like people that are just like really building power, going door to door and, and really doing it. So it was a, it was a very, very hopeful event and it's really great to see what they've done with the station. Uh, there was also a woman who, uh, uh, they, they broadcast in three languages now, uh, two indigenous languages wow. and, uh, in addition to Spanish. And, uh, so yeah, just really thrilling. It, it definitely one of the, the stations uh, that I've been associated with that that I'm just 
the most thrilled about what they've managed to do with it uh, in terms of, of, you know, building their community. So. Uh, you know, a couple things I learned uh, was some, some history uh, about um, Cesar Chavez in particular, um, because it turned out that uh, what uh, Arturo Rodriguez mentioned is that going back to Who's 19, Arturo Rodriguez? Um, he is the uh, UFW president current. Okay. So and he United was at Farm last Workers. night's event celebrating yeah. the 10 year anniversary of this radio. Station. Yes. Thank you. Um, and he talked about how going back to 1962, when they when they were first organizing uh, farm workers in in California, and you know is is the beginning of the sort of the congresses that would create the U, UFW. Even then, they were they were imagining having a network of radio stations, you know, because that would be a way to communicate, you know, very directly to uh, to folks both in the home and I and I suppose also in in the field. And I, and I didn't know it it goes that, that far back. And he mentioned now that there. Are, uh, many, many stations uh, across uh, the West, it sounds like, we're probably elsewhere, and, and Peter, you can probably fill that in now, that are operated uh, by and for farm workers. Yeah, there are a number. Uh, there aren't enough, but there are, um, you know, uh, I think in the dozens, you know, uh, and it's, a, it's a quite an achievement. It's also, you know, one thing uh, about Pacoon that I just find really amazing is uh, they before they even started, they had this kind of understanding of what radio would do for them that went way beyond what a lot of the other groups that I've worked with have. I mean, they definitely wanted to have a daily connection with their constituents. They didn't want to have to knock on doors every time that they wanted to get a message out to their yeah. constituents. And so that's a big thing. But the other thing that they were thinking about was they, they were like, you know, Latinos are a majority in the area of Woodburn, but they are a minority of voters. Uh, and so there is a real big power imbalance between like, you know, the people that are there versus the people that get elected in, in office. But they start to realize that, you know, as children are growing up, they're reaching voting age, there was, there's going to be a moment where they could start electing people to office. And one of the things that they really wanted the radio station for, you know, they had a bunch of you know, leaders of the nonprofits that they work with, the housing group, the the youth group, the women's group. Um, and they wanted them to be prepared to be able to, to run for office one day. You know, they wanted them to be used to speaking in public, to speaking to a, a pretty good general audience. And they wanted them, uh, and they wanted a, like, in some ways, the radio to be a school of, of public speaking and, you know, researching issues, debating, talking about things. And, you know, so to, to come back after, you know, after 10 years and see they had a plan, they stuck to their plan, they did it. And you they're know? seeing the fruits, <laughs> they're actually seeing the fruits of that labor. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, really developing... Um, you know, developing their ability, the ability of their community to defend itself. And it was, you know, it was also just, you know, uh, uh, on such a night when like so many people have become so afraid of, of what, uh, you know, the new president wants to do. Right. We're, we're about eight days out from the election of Donald Trump. So it's, it's still a very fresh, very fresh wound for, for a lot of people. That was a room full of people that were not afraid. You yeah, know, they they were like, you know, we've been through things that, you know, have been, uh, you know, as bad as this. And, you know, we, we always knew there would be more. 
And uh, so it was, it was really seen, inspirational. They've seen see. autocracy in their own, in their own countries. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or in here. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, the history of Oregon in particular, you know, I think folks who are not familiar so much uh, see the sort of modern day progressive Portland and make certain assumptions, but uh, that progressivism is fairly recent and there's a pretty terrible racist history uh, in, in Oregon, um, in communities that, that, uh, certainly prejudice against people, uh, at all sorts of people who are not of white European descent. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I do think all of our elected officials are, well, I know for a fact it's a, it's a mostly white to Washington at elected least. Yeah. body. Yeah. 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 Well, and so I, I you know, yeah. it was, it was a great insight of theirs and it actually reflects, there's a scholar of, of, uh, communications, Clemencia Rodriguez, who did her work in Colombia. And one of the things that she said is, if you look at community radio by the metrics that were designed for commercial radio about like how well you can sell ads using it, well, yeah, we kind of suck, right? I mean, you just can't sell as many ads to, you know, the listeners. But when you look at some of its bigger, you know, impacts, uh, one of them is the way that it changes the people that participate. You know, the way when, when you know, youth get involved in it and when, when people have, like, you know, an ability to express themselves about different issues, how it shapes the ability of people to be, you know, part, uh, you know, part of, part of a democracy. And, uh, you know, so that's something that they got, you know, right off the bat and very deliberate about. That's wonderful. And so you, you're now, at this point, helping stations to get built out, low-power FM stations and community radio stations, and, uh, you know, full-power stations, ostensibly. Um, and we're at this moment where we are now three years after the licensing window was open and, and a little less than three years since license, uh, construction permits actually have been handed out to low-power FM stations. And the construction permits have an expiration date. <laughs> they sure do. You don't, they're, they are not infinite. It's not, here's a license to, to build a station and do it sometime in the next 10 years. Uh, it's, it's something more like 18 months. Is that, is that correct? It's 18 months for uh, low power FMs and it's extendable for another 18 months. Um, and, you know, it's actually, it, it's such a funny thing, you know, going from, uh, doing policy work to try to form the service and to you know force the government to pass it uh, to you know the actual daily practice you know and 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 how it comes down for people you know when they're when they're actually building the things and uh, there is a very good policy reason for expiring uh, expiring construction permits and that is if someone applies for a, to build a radio station. And then they don't build it for three years. That is a loss to the public of Mm -hmm. those airwaves that could have been used. And in fact, there's all kinds of nefarious people in broadcasting. You know, there there have been people who would apply for permits just to make sure that someone else didn't get them. And then they leave them off the air uh, just to keep the market. uh, Zero sum game. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm glad the FCC makes the permits expire. What I'm not glad about is that the the windows are so infrequent and they are so there's no way you can plan for them that you know if you get a construction permit now it's kind of your last chance because you know it could be ten years before they open it again 
And so it's really, it creates this land rush mentality where like we have to like run around telling everybody that uh, this is your last chance. You know, if you ever want to be on, on the air, you know, you can't decide to do that next year. You've got to apply now and you've got to uh, get it and build it within this, within a certain amount of time. And what that creates is just all, you know, lots of organizations, they will start and they will want to, you know, they'll get started on this process, but then something will change. Like, you know, one thing that happened with the last time there was a full power window was it was in 2007 and all these groups applied and then boom, the recession hit and there was no money to build them. And yeah, uh, just bad timing. Yeah. And, and so that can like really just sabotage it. You know, another thing that I, as an advocate, I advocated for was not being able to transfer them. Um, and there was a good reason for that. I mean, I did not want to see a secondary market in low power FEMS where some, you know, some nasty, creepy person would go and apply for hundreds around the country in in the name Businessman, of shadow, entrepreneur. shadow organization <laughs> and, and then, and then turn around and sell them to groups that want to do them. You know, I believe that they should be free and, yeah. you know, because they're non-commercial licenses and I didn't really want to see a secondary market. Problem is, of course, sometimes, you know, a group would apply, they wouldn't be able to build it. And then they wouldn't really be able to like, they'd have, get, to, they'd have to die with it, die on the vine. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, the thing that would solve all this is if the FCC actually had regular filing windows, you mm -hmm. know, where you knew every two years, January 1st, you know, you would have a four-day period where you could apply for a radio. And that would fix a lot of things. But the problem for the FCC with that is that they don't know how much funding they're going to have next year. You know, so they're just sort of... and So their ability to process the applications and, and do all the due diligence necessary for this to roll out in a way that, that meets the requirements and is, and is to some extent fair. And yeah. They could have a, a Congress that is like, oh, you know, you know, throw government into the bathtub and smother it, you know. And uh, so they're very reluctant to, to actually make commitments about what they're going to do in the future. So... Uh, it's a, a great reason for me to not be lobbying in Washington anymore and like building radio stations is <laughs> like when you understand the level of dysfunction and, mm -hmm. you know, crossed incentives and all that sort of thing. It just makes you wonder how the country doesn't like fall off into the ocean and, you know, just, you know, it's a, I, I was very happy to work on the one bill and I'm glad I'm not working on another. <laughs> how much time did you spend in Washington lobbying for, for radio policy? Uh, like 12 years okay. or so. Tell, tell yeah. me the dates, or uh, you know, roughly. Well, you know, uh, 1998, okay. you know, we start, that was our first pirate radio demonstration, pushing the FCC towards adopting this. And, uh, and then I was done by 2011 uh, when we passed the Local Community Radio Act. And now you get to uh, see some of the fruits of that labor yourself as you go. I mean, you did certainly with with the barn raisings, you know. And, and I think you know, I, I I like to make sure to to point out to listeners that while this most recent window of of applications and licenses for low power FM resulted in in thousands 
of, of applications. I think it's resulting in thousands of stations. Um, you know, this happened once before in, in 2000 and, uh, stations by and large are not able to get on in urban areas because of the, uh, spacing requirements, which were, uh, up, which were updated and improved with that 2011 local community radio act. Um, but hundreds and hundreds of stations went on then that are now like like Picoon Station in Woodburn are are in many cases thriving and yeah. and celebrating five seven eight ten years of service uh, or more because some of the stations first probably went on the air around two thousand two is that about right yeah it was a real sort of irony for me because you know when I was operating a pirate station in Philadelphia I. You know, I didn't know that, you know, five years from then I would be building radio stations in like rural, rural Louisiana Mm -hmm. and like, you know, like really small towns. But that's all that Congress allowed us for the first 10 years of the Power FM was these very rural stations. And to be honest, I mean, I uh, although I'm very angry about losing 10 years of like good urban broadcasting, it did force us to focus in the rural areas which I think, you know, the election tells us that was like, that was work worth doing. You know, that was, I mean, I think I would have had my sights set on the five stations that were available in Minneapolis, but instead I did spend a bunch of time in Woodburn and, you know, and, you know, up Louisiana and, you know, Immokalee, Florida and places that are really important. Imagine a healthy community radio station in every rural community in the United States. Yeah. You know, imagine... Imagine what a different country we could have if there was real community radio everywhere. Yeah. As opposed to a special little island. Yeah. And so at this point then, you know, there's certainly folks who have construction permits that are that are ticking. And I'm sure there's at least a few people, maybe they're listening to the show or a little a little bit of like an oh no moment. Uh, what can we do if this is running out? Because you know, again, when you get the construction permit, you you might have been one of many applicants. So you don't really you don't you're not guaranteed to get the construction permit in the first place. And then when it finally arrives from the FCC, it might even be a bit of a surprise. And there can be this long distance of time between that application and when you got it, in which any number of calamities or just changes in organizational structure can ensue. What are some options for people now if they're if because you know I don't know. When was I'm trying to think of when the last sort of construction permits went out. I suppose that there's still probably a couple dripping out here and there, but the last big batch was months and months ago. Yeah, I mean, most of, most of the singletons came out very quickly, the ones where there was no com- competition. Right. But then wherever there was a complex uh, group of actors that were all trying to get the radio station, it took the FCC longer to process those. Uh, mostly because the FCC tries to get the parties to come up with some agreement because the FCC hates watching people sue each other mm-hmm. uh, and you know just doesn't you know, want to get in the middle. So they yeah. kind of hope that time and eagerness to get on the air brings the parties to the table and right. they work something out amongst themselves. Which, which Paul has talked about on the podcast before about opportunities for, for – um for cooperation as opposed to the adversarial uh, option that you just mentioned in, in court, that uh, some nice things have happened in radio land when people have been uh, have been forced to, to get to the table and get along. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes it works. Sometimes it works fine. Um, well, uh, you know, I, I think uh, 
it is important uh, for people to realize that uh, that to get yourself started, you know, it is a large capital expense. I mean, and you know, often, uh, you know, one of the the real bad things that happened with this was uh, one of the benefits that we got was the ability to be in the cities, but there was a provision of it in the technical part of it. And, you know, we fought dozens of like poison pills that they, that the national association of broadcasters tried to put into it. Hmm. But one thing that we had to do in some cases was to do this protection for second adjacent channel interference uh, which meant that we often had to buy very expensive antennas that were very tall, very high places on towers. Mm. And, you know, and so that is like probably the Achilles heel of a, of a whole lot of stations is, you know, if they were just doing something that was like, you know, putting a, an antenna on someone's rooftop and it's okay if it doesn't have such good coverage and, you know, they work for a couple of years and buy a better antenna, buy something bigger. That, that is a great option for some groups. And so if you have that, that's great. But there are some groups that are just in a lot of trouble because I, I just visited one in Santa Ana and that, that antenna has to be like 250 feet in the air. So that's in California. That's in yeah. Southern California. And so dense urban sub sprawl. Yeah. And dense that, urban sprawl. <laughs> and that one, uh, the tower owner, the only tower owner in town, wants three thousand dollars a month for, wow. for rent for like this dinky hundred watt radio license, and so you know that's the kind of situation that's it's very tough. Um, but I, you know what I often tell people is just, just don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, you know you want to get your permit on the air. You can often reduce power, take a smaller radius for a while until something shakes loose. And, uh, you know, even uh, with reduced power and with um, a low antenna, uh, you, you'll be surprised. I mean, that's all we had as pirates, and <laughs> it often goes quite a ways. Yeah. Uh, and then I also tell people, you know, just don't worry about getting too much of a studio together. Um, obviously, you know, you're going to sound better if you have a real studio. Uh, and, but, you know, for the purposes of like getting past the, you know, pass that construction permit. Perfectly fine if you have the the little Radio Shack mixer and a couple headphones and like, well, there's no such thing as a Radio Shack mixer anymore. <laughs> but the mixer that you got on eBay or, yeah. or on Amazon. But uh, yeah, just go real simple with studios for right now. And then, you know, it's always good for a community radio station to have like that origin story where yeah, we were all sitting around on milk crates with a single bare bulb and it was like the back of someone's trailer and, you know, like that, that's fine, you know, yeah. and you'll, you'll, you'll build the studio like once you have a radio, that, that FM signal on the air. I understand that in, and also in many cities, uh, things that people have run into is, is just glacial permitting processes where, you know, simply getting it approved to put up your antenna because it depends city to city. Uh, is itself this long drawn out process. Whereas often in a smaller town, you know, where there isn't a lot of building going on and that's probably part of the problem is gumming it up in a lot of cities, whether it's like a place like Portland or Seattle or, or Chicago or Philadelphia, that's just building like mad. And you've got these 
uh, city offices that are that are swamped, you know, not yeah. as if they don't want to deal with it, but they're absolutely swamped and it can take months and months and months just to be permitted to, to put up a tiny, tiny uh, tower, if you could call it that, even on top of a yeah. building. Yeah, and it can be really, uh, you know, it can be that you can't even find a contractor that's able to do it because, like, it's just a kind of an unusual specialty. Mm-hmm. And so who has the right kind of insurance and who has the right kind of, you know, all that stuff. Um, I've been like over the years of being a radio engineer, I've been like becoming every year I get a little bit more legit. Like every time I have like another like sort of city obstacle or permit I'm supposed to get, you know, I I finally ended up getting my, my certification as a a, a competent tower climber and Mm. I got my certification as an engineer and insurance and, you know, it's just a lot of things. Um, um, and it's made it more and more expensive for me to like actually, you know, to do the kind of work. Um, but I just, you know, each time I hit a barrier like that, it's like a whole other layer of, uh, of paperwork that I have to, you know, figure out how to navigate. If I thought Congress was bad, you know, try like city zoning, you know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> and, and can like, like, uh, can allies like, uh, city council people and aldermen, help in sometimes in that process, city to city, especially, I mean, I just think I used to live in Chicago yeah. and it's, and that's a place where if you can get your alderman behind you on something, it usually speeds it up compared to just working through the, uh, the usual bureaucracy yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's really, uh, important to have, uh, you know, a relationship with those kinds of, uh, those kinds of people in order to get things done. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, but there's also, uh, you know, it kind of depends. I mean, there are still a lot of them that can manage to just kind of go under the radar, you know, in one way or another. Um, uh, you know, the good thing is if you don't have that horrible second adjacent situation, sometimes you can just get away with, you know, like a little roof mount sort of thing. And You worked you know, on one of those, building. Eric. You helped. Uh, you were there for the uh, free forum Portland it was fun. Uh, antenna raising, and it's essentially they built a, a small rooftop tower. They, they put a little tower, in, to my mind, it was little, on top of a one-story building in North Portland. It was fun. It's there. Yeah. You know, they don't intend to stay there. Yeah. But that it, I think it was following exactly your right. advice. Just and to get started. And the stations here in Portland are very lucky because there's a, a few talented and competent engineers who have been willing to to donate their time or work at very inexpensive rates. Passionate and experienced. Yeah. uh, Helping these stations uh, get on the air. Uh, One, you know, just knocking them down (laughs) one by one to the best, to the best of their ability. Uh, But that's, that's sort of a unique situation because unfortunately radio engineers are not a species that has been uh, replicating. No. (laughs) At a great rate. I'm one of the youngest ones I know, and that is not very young. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else? I mean, so is there, you know, let's say, you know, we're a station that maybe isn't, uh, isn't facing the sort of urban issues, right? So maybe they're not someplace where permits are a big deal. It's just simply more a matter of, oh my gosh, you know, there's just nobody here who really knows how to make sure all the parts fit together and we're doing it right. Um, you know, I mean, in many cases, I know stations had someone help them, uh, you know, file their paperwork, which required a little bit of engineering and such. But, you know, there may be some folks who are caught in alerts. Do you know, are there other resources, other places that they, that they can call where they might be able to start finding someone who can, who can give them a hand? Or are there DIY resources? 
Um, there's there's a lot that's sort of sitting on the web in various states of repair. Um, <laughs> at Prometheus, one thing that we did was uh, one of the things I, I really liked that we did was we had a uh, like a lot of groups that turn into nonprofits. We we did some things foolishly at first, and then we came up with better ways. Um, we used to, you know, when we needed to write a handbook on something, we would just, you know, find someone like f- some intern or some someone on staff would try to write it. And then we hit on this idea where we we're like, no, let's not write the handbooks ourselves. Let's like go get a get a grant and like make a little bounty. And I think it was like a thousand bucks. So it's like a little fundraiser for your station. Like if you've if you if there's some part of your operations that you've really nailed it and you think you're confident about it, you can write the handbook for for Prometheus. And our one requirement was that you document your own experience, but you also talk to five other stations and see how they did it as well. And so we put out a series of handbooks that I was very, very happy with. One on automation, one on I think towers and uh, mm-hmm. well, that one actually was one of the old ones that I wrote. But there was uh, there was another one on uh, there was automation. There was maybe one on volunteer management. There were there were a whole series of of a bunch of them. So there's uh, you know there there's that. There have been a lot of things that have been written since then as well. Uh, and also, I mean, one of the things I really recommend is that people visit other stations, you know, so, so look on the list and check them out. They're usually very happy to, to have you come for the day and like, you know, walk through and look around and, you know, a lot of stations, you know, while they're very devoted to their community, everyone has like a little bit of a dream of like it having a little bit bigger impact. And so, you know, for someone that put like, you know, dozens of hours into their volunteer handbook to have someone like from another station be like, Hey, could I check it out? They love that. You know, they really, they love to to share that kind of resource. And then you can just, instead of reinventing the wheel, you can just, you know, make it fit, you know, make it fit your situation. So there, and there is a lot of that out there. Petrie, you, um, you're here in Portland because you're celebrating this 10 year anniversary of this station going on the air. I'm wondering how often you get that opportunity to see stations thrive that you help build? Um, you know, every so often, um, you know, when I'm in a part of the country where, where I built a, a station, I do, uh, I do try to visit if I can. Uh, right now, it's a hard moment because I do have so many that are expiring soon. And, and so I'm Construction just like, permits that are expiring. Yeah. So stations that either get built now or forever hold yeah, Hold so air, dead air. So I don't have a lot of time these days, um, but I made t- time for Pakun because they're ju- they're just like one of the real special ones for us. But um, there are uh, there are a number that I visited over the years. There's another one called Radio Conciencia and in Immokalee, that in Florida. I've gotten to to go back to and uh, help them do some upgrades. Um, there's a station in Opelousas, Louisiana, which was the first uh, radio station licensed to a civil rights organization that I went back to uh, once or twice. And actually, I haven't... Tell, tell us more about that station. Oh, that one was uh, fantastic. It was with uh, Southern Development Foundation. Um, and they uh, were from a part of Louisiana where Zydeco music was from. Mm-hmm. And when they were building... 
there was no other Zydeco music on the air in in Louisiana. It, yeah, in, in well, in that town anyway. Okay. Yeah, I think there was like one one hour show or something like that. But you know, most everything was like country or classic rock or whatever. Yeah, and you know that was what where radio had gotten to by that time was just you know it was just so damn cheap to like put something on a million stations and you know that that something like Zydeco music was overlooked in, in the middle of Louisiana. And uh, so that organization uh, was, uh, th- it was uh, inspired by an amazing Catholic priest. Um, he was from Brooklyn, actually. And he was one of those Catholic priests that, um, you know, he would talk about Jesus and everything, but he also talked a lot about quantum theory and like Buddhism and whatever. You're just like one of these like polymath kind of guys, big prison prison reformer and uh, initiator of, of cooperatives. And, uh, you know, in Brooklyn, he might've just been like that kooky guy down the block, but in Opelousa, he was the weirdest guy they ever met and they loved him. Like mm. they just, what a, what a cool priest to have. And so he really inspired uh, Father McKnight. And he, he also started a group called Blacks United for Spiritual Togetherness. Just like a, a, a great thing. It was like kind of like meeting Gandhi or something like that. Mm. It was just like really very cool. Um, and so he really uh, had developed a great organization there. Uh, and, uh, so they were very eager to have the radio station and we did a barn raising there, I think in 2003, uh, where, you know, we just brought a bunch of people together and put the station together over the weekend. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was really touching. And from what I know, they're still on the air and they're still doing well. And Mm. it, it was just like a really great fit for that community. Well, um, tell us about the like the baby. Tell us about the newest radio station you helped get on the air. Um, let's see. Uh, well, uh, one that I did this summer that I'm particularly thrilled about is uh, Zoomix uh, in Boston. Uh, that group uh, it is a children's after-school music program that started in, re- in uh, response to uh, a wave of youth violence in East Boston. And basically the founder, uh, Madeline, uh, she uh, started bringing kids over to her house and uh, organizing guitar lessons and drum lessons and stuff, just like something to keep kids off the street and get them connected to the adult world and not just the, you know, the drug world and whatever. And over over the ensuing, whatever it's been, 20 years, she, uh, was given an old firehouse, which Hmm. she renovated. And uh, now it's got thousands of children involved uh, with all kinds of musical classes and with an internet radio studio. Uh, They have a little business where they do uh, sound production. So like you can get kids to come and like operate your soundboard for your event. Wow. And uh, so great organization. They've been interested in radio since the nineties. I visited once on one of my little, you know, you know, back in those days I would like go around like trying to incite people to, to 
start pirate radio stations. Johnny Appleseed. And I went, I had this uh, little lunchbox transmitter with an umbrella antenna that I would mm-hmm. bring and like show to groups. And so it was like a little spy pirate radio sort of, maybe like the penguin or something like that. You know, like, <laughs> I'm um, going to stick with this Johnny Appleseed before I figure it out. Let me keep thinking. So anyway, it was one that I had visited such a long time ago. And they, they always, you know, when, when they could do an internet stream, they, they did that, but they always wanted to be on FM. And so um, we, we put that together this summer. And it's a collaboration with a local high school. So the studio is actually in the high school. The high school roof is on kind of a nice high point for East Boston. And uh, so that one was a, a real thrilling one to to, to see. That's uh, a really true. really exciting radio station. Yeah. I want to know more. We can. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's the wonderful part about doing this show is that a very uh, what's turned out to be a huge component of this is just learning about all of the interesting stations and all of the great applications that radio is being turned to. And it's great to hear you know time and time again how radio is being used to help uh, educate youth in all sorts of skills that they're not picking up in a traditional classroom circumstance. Yeah. You know, whether it's in thinking about, you know, how with Pacoon, how they, they very specifically focus on leadership development mm-hmm. and how using radio as a way of developing your voice as a public speaker is really critical if, if if they're going to bring up a new generation of leaders, many of whom will be political leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because too often uh, when when radio and education get thought of together, it's well, we're training kids for a career in broadcast, yeah. and and it doesn't get past that point. What gets left behind is all of the other skills, some of them hard skills, which could be engineering, as it is. It seems like at the at, the, at this Boston school, and it can be uh, being a musician all the way to what, you know, soft skills, leadership, being able to speak and present your ideas in a way that is, uh, that is persuasive and, and really coherent. Uh, so it's just wonderful to, to hear that. And I guess you get, you, you're this lucky opportunity to, to have a firsthand, uh, uh, experience yeah. with, with these different situations. Yeah, it's a great job. And I, you know, I, one thing I was thinking about in the wake of the election, I remember, thinking about like how so many of my friends and myself thought that Trump could never win. And basically it was because of things that he said, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think that that's like a cognitive error of like the educated classes. Um, Because for us, like, it's really important what you say. You can get fired for saying something stupid. You can like, you can really like screw things up if you say the wrong thing. But because I live in like kind of two worlds, like on the one hand, kind of as a construction worker, you know, which is what I kind of do when I don't have work or whatever. Uh, uh, although I haven't been like this past year or two because I've been so busy with the stations. But you know, for construction workers, no one gives a gives a crap what they say. I mean, mm-hmm. like you know, it's just like part of you know what you do to pass the time is like trade insults and that sort of thing. And, and so there were plenty of people in this country who think that like what someone like when, when, when Trump said, she says all these good things, but they're just words. Like I was like, yeah, <laughs> like she is, she's, you know, she, that, that's just words. Well, as and, long, oh, as long as you're going there, I'm going yeah. to throw into the pot the idea that um, I don't blame people for the mistrust of the mainstream media. And I get really upset 
when people say the media when mm-hmm. they be that they so I, I I tried to start a fight on Twitter, no one would would join me. <laughs> but, like I, I, you know, someone someone locally in Portland uh, was saying something about how um how the media is part of the problem and gets it so wrong and is dividing us. And I was like, yes, of course. But aha, there's this other media that exists that is there to unite us and to give everybody a voice. And it's it's there. It's here in Portland. You can tune. There's five radio stations that I can think of off the top of my head in Portland that are that's their mission is to is to give that alternate voice. And uh, yeah, more community radio and make it so everybody's words are important. You know, because that that is something that I think a lot of the, you know, that like imaginary Trump supporter we're all thinking about these days. You know, they're people whose whose words are not very important. You know, and, they're not being listened to. Yeah, and and I think that that's one of the things about community radio is like it 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 is all about the significance of everybody's voice, uh, and it's, it's something we could use a lot more of. Yeah, it's the ability for people to not be so mediated. And, you know, even right. great public service broadcasting, you know, in the model of a BBC or national public radio, mediates other people's voices. Mm-hmm. It's the rare occasion when uh, an average person is offered the opportunity to speak at length, unedited, yeah. unmediated. And even those who, who have quite a bit of power are mostly edited and mostly not given too much of an opportunity to speak at length uh, and, and to have an opportunity to clarify their thoughts rather than being, you know, having to, to distill everything to a, to a soundbite. And I think, you know, community radio, one of its best aspects is that ex- opening of the microphone. And yeah, maybe folks are not ready to speak in soundbites and maybe they are not ready to have their thoughts fully composed, but maybe have the opportunity over the course of time. And that time can be in, in one moment, meaning like today for an hour, or it can be over the course of, of hours on days and weeks to come develop and, and work it out in some ways often mm-hmm. in conjunction with, callers in conjunction with people who are IMing them or tweeting them, you know, yeah. in conjunction with other people in the studio, you know, that it can be, it can be a discussion. It can be a conversation imperfect probably, but yet very different than, than what we get in even the best public service co- uh, broadcasting. Yeah. You know, it actually reminds me of a, a story that's in a little bit of a different direction. I, I got a chance to go to, uh, to India uh, about a year, a uh, year and a half ago and visit the community radio movement there. And I got to visit, uh, a station that's run by Dalit women. Uh, Dalit are the, what well, what, what used to be called an untouchables. Mm. Um, and, uh, they're people that are outside the caste system and are, are considered very low caste. And, uh, it was a federation of about 6,000 women and they actually received the first community radio license in India, which was back in 2007. They've been operating the station for a number of years. And, uh, you know, because they don't have engineers visit very often, you know, I was, I, you know, looking at their facilities, like, you know, seeing what we could figure out to make sure everything was working right. And I noticed, you know, they said, you know, they were just broadcasting about two or three hours a day. And, uh, 
And I said, well, you know, you could, uh, and they pre-record everything, nothing live. They just like take it and they play it from like, I don't know, three o'clock to six o'clock every day. And I was just, I was looking and I was like, well, you know, without buying anything, just with the stuff that you have here, you could really take your stuff that you've recorded and you could just, you know, repeat it and put it on at other times too, so that, you know, it'd be more convenient for your listeners that, you know, they could hear and it was very interesting the response I got. It was uh, they were like immediately like, "Oh no, no, we w- we wouldn't want to do that." And so on with the conversation, you know, they basically explained um, when we produce the radio, uh, you know, we produce it. It's not really entertainment for us. It is our education because most of these women are illiterate. They you know they don't have any you know they they can't read. They don't have, they haven't gone to school. So, um, you know, the way our day looks, you know, we're out in the fields all day. And when we're in the fields, we're either communicating and planning and like making our work work or, or we sing together. So we wouldn't want to listen to the radio while we're, while we're mm. you know, while we're doing that. Um, and we wouldn't really want the radio dis- to displace that. And, you know, then we, we go home, we listen, you know, usually while, while we're like preparing dinner and everything. And then after that, you know, we wouldn't want to listen to it either. And so it was so interesting to me that, first of all, they had this routine, you know, that was, they knew exactly like when everyone was doing what. Um, But also um, that they had this way of looking at technology. And, And a lot of it came from their experience of the Terminator seeds, uh, where, which is where Monsanto is trying to like force everyone in India to buy their seeds, which you can't save. You know what people have been doing in agriculture for thousands of years is like you know they save the seeds and they plant them next year, but Monsanto wants you to buy new seeds every year, and so these women have been very much part of the resistance to that sort of thing, and and the resistance, the cross pollinization of these screwed up seeds with their traditional heirloom seeds, and so anyway. I, I was just really struck by the difference in how they approached the adoption of a new technology versus how I did. You know, us in the West, you know, if there's like like a new technological thing, like we feel like we're old and stupid if we haven't adopted it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it makes our lives any better or whether or not it actually, you know, helps anything. Um, and the way that they really, uh, you know, they would look at a technology and be like, okay, does this fit with what I'm trying to do or does it not? Um, now, yeah, you can make all kinds of arguments. I mean, I'm sure there actually probably would be a couple of listeners, you know, that, you know, and they might've seen it in a different way uh, when they were making that decision. But what was interesting was like the empowerment in the connection with how they were going to, to use it um, that I feel like we've kind of lost. Uh, yeah, in- really focused on that utility and what it, the value it's really bringing rather than hewing to uh, some other value that's unknown. Yeah. Right. The, what, 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 what would it be to be on 24 seven? Because we know our audience and we are really serving them because certainly no other, I'm assuming no other radio, at least in that part of the, of, of India is serving them yeah. in, in that sort of way. Well, and they were also very like, you know, they realized that a lot of people came and made documentaries about them and whatever. And they were just like, you know, 
we're like so much better telling our own story, mm-hmm. you know, instead of having someone like come along and like edit us and like tell their story using us as props, you know. Um, it was a real, um, it was a great experience to see, you know, what the difference is, like, you know, when, you know, when, when you walk into it with a different set of assumptions. Yeah. What are you up to next? Well, um, there's definitely a, a bunch of these stations with expiring permits that I'm going to try to work on. I have a very, uh, uh, very cool looking one. Uh, uh, so the the next one is the high school in Los Angeles, the Latin America. The, the I'm sorry, the Los Angeles Academy of Arts and Education uh, and Enterprise. Uh, it's a charter school that mm-hmm. got a piece of the the 101.5 frequency. So I'm working on that. And then also... <laughs> that, that was the one that had, at one point... 32 right. applicants. 32 right, applicants. we talked about that on yeah, the show yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, and I'm also going to work on the National Hispanic Media Coalition, uh, which is a fantastic organization. They work a lot on anti-Latino uh, hate speech. And they were real you know, heroes in the, in the fight on net neutrality uh, and, uh, you know, very forward-thinking uh, organization, you know, sort of uh, uh, that we're very fortunate to have. There was this moment when there were a lot of uh, civil rights organizations that were kind of, you know, hoodwinked into supporting uh, the Comcast and Verizon with a bunch of like very generous donations to to oppose net neutrality, but they were one of the organizations that were like, wait a second, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. So they were great on that. They're great on uh, on seeing the connection between hate speech against Latinos and hate speech against uh, gay lesbian uh, organizations. So very a great organization. So they're going to have another piece of that one hundred one point five in Ooh, uh, neat station. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm working on those. <clears throat> uh, I've got another one with a peace organization in uh, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one with, uh, called Sankofa uh, Youth Development in Alabama, um, and uh, so yeah, just a you know bunch bunch coming up. Uh, I, I'm I, I'm going to get a chance to return to India um, at probably sometime in February, I think, mm. and so I'm uh, pretty excited to to do that. And uh, you know who who knows. That's fantastic. Yeah, drop us a line. Keep us us in the loop. We know uh, you are off. In fact, right after we finish here, you're off back down to Woodburn to go to, is it uh, KPCN? KPCN. KPCN LP. And you're going to go check out out the station? Uh, Yeah. um, Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll... Wear everybody with my attempt at Spanish. Uh, <laughs> wear on everyone's patience. <laughs> with, um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing that. They they are going to have a bigger frequency uh, pretty soon that covers uh, a larger part of of Oregon, uh, based in Salem. It's uh, not them, but it's a sister organization, uh, mm. Mano a Mano, and so uh, you know i'm i'm hoping to get a chance to work on that one as well cuz they're a fantastic group uh, you know really inspirational to work with so well Petrie, thank you so much for taking a little time out of uh, your busy schedule here while you're while you're in portland i really appreciate and really appreciate all the work you're doing to uh, help uh, these stations flower around the country 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a it's really great to be on Radio Survivor because you know it's a it's it's really you know it's really great to be able to like showcase all these different stations and all the different things that are happening in the field and and really uh, you know I, I enjoy listening to it. So thanks. So many special thanks to Petri Dish for dropping by the Radio Survivor Podcast Studios, aka Paul's apartment. To, to, to share with us some of his stories about building radio stations, building community radio. Um, so glad that we got the opportunity to get um, an hour of his memories and impressions and current projects on tape for this episode because um, he has been busy helping to build community radio stations for a long time and he had a lot to share with us. Um, really excited about a lot of those projects and um, hope... I'm going to remind myself here, I'm bookmarking the idea that every single radio station that we learned about in that interview is a radio station that I want to know more about, and so I look forward to those opportunities in the near future of um, checking them out. That would be that would be a dream. Hey, everybody. Um, well, first and foremost, we had a discussion today on the podcast, and if you felt stimulated and or um, angered... <laughs> let's just let's just put it out there. If you have any opinion at all, uh, uh, good, bad, or indifferent about the work that we were uh, doing, the discussions we were having, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us. Uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com is the email. You can also uh, shout at us on Twitter. We love it. You can shout at us on Facebook. We love it. Uh, there were forums at one time on the Radio Survivor website. I think they still function. Uh, go ahead and join the forum and start an argument uh, if you would like to, or a reasonable discussion of facts and values, of ideology and ideas. Uh, that's what we're here for. Um, and there's also the email again, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Hey, not to mention, uh, you know, the, the, the opportunity for Low Power FM is sunsetting, as far as we know. Uh, for the long-term time being. And um, if you are out there in the Radio Survivor community aware of a low-power FM radio station that should get built, that has the application process uh, in hand but is is having trouble uh, completing those final steps to get on the air, we certainly want to know about them because... um, because because that time that window is closing and that's a real uh that's a that's a very radio survivor story that we want to be aware of so if anyone out there in radio survivor land knows of low power fm stations uh looking to get on the air but struggling to complete those final steps reach out to us uh that's a story that we want to help tell and so we'd love to hear about your stations um or your your dreams stations uh, or, or friends dream stations uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com or any other other channels that we make available for you to find us. You know, go to the website Radio Survivor and reach out to us. Go to the Facebook page of Radio Survivor and reach out to us. Um, and make sure to you know explain why you're reaching out to us in this case uh, because you know about a low power FM station that uh, hasn't been able to get on the air but has everything else, you know, all of its paperwork in line up to the part of um, getting on the air. We'd love to hear about it. So uh, thank you so much for listening today. You can uh, check out the show notes. Uh, There's a documentary or a a short 
YouTube video. Hey, you know what? They produced that video before YouTube. It's a doc. It's a video documentary back in the days of uh, making videos before YouTube of that um, Pakun station being built by a, a group of uh, people who are 10 years younger than they are today. Back in 2006, uh, that's the, well, the station that we opened our conversation about today in Woodburn, Oregon. Uh, you can check out that YouTube clip uh, uh, on, on those show notes. That's the point I'm trying to make. On the show notes for this podcast episode. Uh, this is podcast number 72. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You know, at the moment, Paul and I are trying to figure out if we're going to get something together for the Thanksgiving week holiday. Uh, although the, the episode will air the Monday after Thanksgiving, we have to produce it the week of the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States. So stay tuned. Uh, we might take a break or we might get squeeze one under the wire. And um, But if we don't, we'll be back the following week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Subscribe in iTunes. Um, subscribe in Stitcher. Subscribe in Overcast. Subscribe in the Google Android podcasting app. Um, just listen to the podcast. Thank you so much. Have a good week.